We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. These are the words of God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what his, uh, uh, and God seeks what has been driven away. Thank you, Sam and Chris. Good morning. It's good to see you today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. If you're a guest, it's a joy to have you with us. We uh, um, are delighted that you're here. We'd love to meet you after the service. We have a connect table in the lobby that we'd um, enjoy meeting you at. You could also go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. That's EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. And uh, there's opportunities to get uh, fill out a digital connect card there as well as get connected with other things that are going on here as a church which is also an important website for you who are members because um, we're running all of our signups through that page. And so if you're a lady and you're interested in doing a fall Bible study through the book of Jude with our um, Emmaus ladies, uh, then the deadline for signing up for that is this Tuesday. So you've got two days to sign up for that Bible study and you can go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect and the sign up is there on that page. Uh, And so we'd love to have you join our women for that study through Jude. Uh, And then coming up on October the 17th, Saturday, October the 17th, we're having an evangelism seminar here at um, Emmaus as well. And uh, and we're going to be just kind of walking through um, the delight and the practice of, of sharing our faith with people. Right? We, we want to be a people who not only believe um, rightly about Jesus and the gospel, but people who, who feel um, the ability to be used by our God to share the gospel with other people. And so we'd invite you to come join us for that as we walk through that as well. You can sign up again at EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. And then if you are um, a, a family that has kids all the way up through second grade, starting on October the 17th, um, we are going to be uh, Sunday, October, sorry, I think I said the seminar, the seminar is the 17th, I looked at the wrong date. Seminar is Saturday the 23rd, Sunday the 17th, 
we're going to be offering um, all the way up through second grade through at Emmaus Kids at this service, at the 1045 service. So if you show up at the 9 o'clock service, we'll be offering up through pre-K. But if you come to the 1045 service, it'll be all the way up through second grade, beginning on Sunday, October the 17th. And so we're excited to continue to expand back into full Emmaus Kids Ministries. And so make sure that you, uh, you take note of that. Hey, um, after the service, so when we're done with the benediction, uh, we're going to begin a new thing. Many of you are used to me standing at the door and just saying bye as you're walking out at the door. Um, but, but our pastors want to be more accessible and maybe less of a just quick passing um, type of way. And so one of the ways that we're going to do that is following the service, at least the preaching pastor, and some weeks multiple pastors will be down front here um, just to, to welcome you. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to, if you're a guest, we'd love to, to see your face and to um, hear your name and to meet you. We would be delighted to uh, get to pray with any of you about anything. We had some really sweet opportunities to, to cry and pray with some members after the first service. And so we would invite you to just come. I would love to have that opportunity with you each Sunday um, with one or two of our pastors down here at the front after the service. So we're looking forward to that. Hey, let me pray for us. And we're going to look at this text. And Jesus, I thank you for your grace to bring us here. And I thank you for this word that you have for us. It is a word that you desire to use to, to release our hearts for joyful, delightful, good worship of you. And Spirit, I also know that it's a passage that can bring much struggle to some of us today. And so we need your grace to wrestle with this, to toil with this, to, to, to think on this and to consider this. We need your grace to receive this today. And so would you give it to us? As we gather here, we also pray for our brothers and sisters that we have sent out from this church and that we partner with around the globe. For our members who are in Southeast Asia sharing the gospel, would you be with them today? For our partners in northern Italy, would you be with them today? For the families that we have sent out to, um, to New England and to the Pacific Northwest and to St. Louis and to Texas, would you be with them today as they gather with their churches? Would you encourage them and give them endurance to press forward in the ministry that you have for them there? Spirit, we need you to preach a better sermon than I prepared here. Speak to our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, in the first two chapters of this book, we've heard the preacher, or the, the author of this, he calls himself the preacher, we've heard him unpack for us, really, this, this journey uh, that he's on to, to find the good life, right? As one pastor, I heard one pastor call, he's like, he's on pursuit of the, of the good life. He's chasing down pleasures and purpose and fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction and peace. And he happens to be this... Um, this guy that as he's on this journey for these things, he has every resource at his disposal to find these. When he pursues pleasure, he has all the means by which to really, really pursue pleasure. And when he pursued knowledge, he had the natural goods, the ability to gain wisdom. He was a smart man with great teachers. When he wanted to pursue wisdom, God actually gave him wisdom. He wanted to build things and to cultivate nature and to grow cities and to play music, and he had the resources to do so. 
when he decided to seek out um, pleasure through sexuality, he had 700 women that were his. And when he wanted to seek out pleasure through wine, he planted his own vineyards and grew the best wine. This man could chase pleasure and success and wisdom and comfort, the good life, to the full. And yet, what he found in all of this chasing is this. It was all hevel. If you remember the word hevel, it's what we saw at the beginning of this book, the word vanity of vanities. It's used 30 to 35 times within this passage, hevel. It means fleeting, vapor, smoke. You can't grasp it. You can't get your whole hands on it. You can't hold on to it. Every pleasure that you go for is smoke, and every accomplishment that you have is a vapor. Every gain is fleeting. For all of my efforts, I do not have control of this life. I can gain it today. I can accrue it today. I can build it up today, and I can lose it all through the grasp of my fingers tomorrow. And should by some chance I be able to, withstand, to, to withhold it until the day that I die, and I die with my pleasures and my wisdom and my knowledge and my cities and my vineyards all intact, I still die, and I lose it all. And ultimately, none of it brought me complete pleasure. And then I have to leave it for someone else who might be a fool and waste it. He says, it's all hevel. There's no true substance in this life under the sun. It's all fleeting. It's all fleeting. And so we said in week one, that if everything that is under the sun is hevel, fleeting, vapor, smoke, we need a hope that is above the sun. Right? The hope, the substance, the, the aim, what we chase, our ultimate goal has to be above the sun, not under the sun. And the preacher then helps us in this book see that when we begin to grasp that the ultimate goal of life is not the pleasures and the wisdom and the success and the comforts and storing all those things up under the sun, but our ultimate pleasure and goal and purpose is the God who is above the sun, that we're actually free to enjoy the hevel under the sun as gift. It no longer is what we must chase after to be fulfilled. It's what we get to enjoy to find pleasure. Our fulfillment comes in one greater than this hevel. Today, the author, the preacher, is going to take us on a deep dive, a poetic deep dive into this further. We're going to read it again as we go, and we're going to try not to think about the birds, turn, 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 as we do. It's a good song for your playlist on the way home, by the way. This author, this preacher, is going to bring us to face what one pastor calls the delights and the disquiets of life. The delights and the disquiets of time. There is going to be a great hevel that is upheld for us to look at, and that hevel is time. Time comes and time goes. Seasons change. We can't control it, and time brings with it delights and disquiets. Things that warm our heart and our soul and bring us pleasure and things that bring us great discomfort and turmoil and sadness and grief. And to be honest, for some of us, this would be a hard message to sit through. Because as we sit here in this message, what we will have to face are disquiets that we have brought in here with us. I sat at Panera 
And I sat at Starbucks, and I sat at the cigar lounge, and I sat in my home office for the last two weeks, pouring myself over this text, and I've wept in each of those places. As I've had to bring the disquiets of my life into this text and wrestle with so many emotions that I don't even know how to like get my hands on, emotions that cognitively, theologically, I know not what I want to feel, but emotions that I felt nonetheless. And I've had to wrestle with those before the Lord and, and in a 10-minute span, go from anger to distrust to frustration to confusion to hopefulness to surrender to what in the world are you up to? You may be in the same place today. Perhaps you're drowning in your disquiets. Your soul is troubled and your mind is tormented. Perhaps your body is hurting and you feel like crying or running or hiding in life right now. Perhaps you even feel like dying. The author is going to talk to you specifically in two weeks. This brings us to these places of disquiet, and it has us address them with honesty. And I want to give you permission, church. I want to give us permission to sit in those places of disquiet. Perhaps even permission that this sermon is is in of itself a disquiet. That not only will it maybe bring up disquiets, but it might actually be a disquiet for you as well. And that's okay. There's much grace for us on the journey of faith. The author is going to bring us to a place where he goes, this is the response that I believe we should have to this. And not many of us will automatically be at that response after a Sunday morning sermon. And that journey is okay. More on that in a moment. Let's look at the passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1, verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Everything comes and everything goes. There is a time and a place for everything. Seasons change. And ultimately what we're going to see is there's very little that we have control over in this. He goes through a list for us, church. A list that Pastor Sam read for us. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones and a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And he goes on. For the sake of time and basically to get to the point what he's getting to, we're going to look at the first few of these. I think they gather what he's saying throughout this. But he says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Emmaus very well knows the delightful season of a time to be born. There are babies being born all the time. It's a perpetual, never-ending season our church is in. I don't know if it'll ever stop just babies after babies after babies. What a joy to be reminded of life over and over again. And yet, church, in the midst of our delight of this season of a time to be born, some of you have the disquiet that you're not able to have children. Others' delight is your disquiet. 
It reminds you of the pain and the loss and the hurt. There is a time to plant and a time to harvest. Everything I said in the middle of there was profound. It was amazing. <laughs> you missed it, but it was really good, right? There is a time for microphones to go on and come off, right? There, there is a time for harvest and there is a time to plant. Or it's the beginning of fall. It's the best season of the year. I won't listen to your arguments because they're wrong, right? <laughs> and, and we're in this season where we remember that at one point we planted things and now it's time to harvest things. You can try to do it your own way. You can try to plant now and harvest later, and it's just not going to go well for you. Right? There's a season and a time and a way that things are supposed to work, and that life comes and death comes, even to plants. He says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Yes, there's a season for death, and sometimes the season for death comes through killing. Murders and wars that he mentions. Disease, evil, wickedness. There's killing that comes. We've walked through that in the last year and a half as a nation and as a world of seeing pandemics kill and seeing um, riots kill and seeing anger kill and seeing wars kill. And there's a time for healing. I sat with a young man just on Friday for lunch whose mom had received news that she was going to die of cancer within four months. And the cancer is gone. The doctors can't explain it. They asked her, what, did you do anything we don't know about you doing? There is a season of healing for her. But for others, there's not. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Sometimes the seasons of weeping and mourning seem to come out of nowhere. You wake up one day thinking the day is just a normal day, and by the end of the day, you're laying in your tears. You can't control when the morning comes, when the weeping comes, it just shows up. Almost always unexpectedly. And sometimes being in the morning that you have to face feels like it comes from deep within, like it's always been there within you, laying wait to come out at some point. Pain and hurt that have been inside of you for years and for decades that all of a sudden now you're feeling. Sometimes you're just going about your day and nothing even happens and all of a sudden you have a moment of great grief. Sometimes the mourning and the weeping last for moments. Sometimes it lasts for months, and sometimes it lasts for years. And then in the middle of that, there's moments of laughter and of dancing. Sometimes these moments of laughter and dancing are, um, are, are just moments in the middle of the weeping. Just short respites of laugh, glimmers of hope, reminders of goodness, tastes of life. And sometimes laughing and dancing is, feels like it goes on for seasons. Like life is so good right now, I can't remember the life that we get. And some of you are so afraid of losing that season of laughter and dance that you can't even enjoy it. 
You're just living in anxiety of the next season of weeping and mourning to come. And he goes on. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather and a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow and a time to keep silence and a time to speak and a time to love and a time to hate. What he's doing, church, is he's setting the stage for us with not an all-inclusive list, but but just a a broad list of of ways, of delights, and of disquiet come into our hearts every day from the simply being a part of this world under the sun and the time that comes and that goes. And he's bringing us to this place and he's saying, listen, your life is full of all these disquiets and all of these these delights and they're all fleeting. They're fleeting. They're a vapor, they're a smoke. You can't even get your hand on it. The moment you think you have a delight and it doesn't matter how hard you work, you can't keep it. It's not in your control to keep the light. And it's not in your control to stop the disquiets. It's out of your control. It's vapor. It's a smoke. You can't grab it. In fact, in verse 9, he says this. What gain has the worker from his toil? And his point here is, listen, all of these things are happening. All these delights are coming and all of these disquiets are coming. And what gain do you have from working so hard to try to control them? You can't. It's not in your power to do so. For all of your efforts, you can't ultimately control any of these delights and these disquiets. Last month, my family went to the, uh, the Chiefs preseason game against the Vikings. And uh, if you have small kids, preseason's the way to go because by halftime, if they're done, the starters are out and you can just leave and you don't feel bad, right? You can, you can go home. And so take your kids to a preseason game. And because it was preseason, we could afford to sit close, right? And so we, uh, you don't pay me enough to sit close on a, uh, on a regular season game. But preseason games, we got down on the second row, right? We were right up close. And, and so you're close to these players. And there's this point where my six-year-old son, seeing these players up close and personal, goes, Dad, Dad, are they bigger than you? I was like, yeah, bud, they're bigger than me. A couple minutes passed, and he goes, hey, Dad, are they stronger than you? And I wanted to lie to him like I've never lied before. No, bud, they might be bigger, but I am so much stronger than all of them. But I was like, no, no, yeah, bud, they're, they're stronger than me. In fact, some of them are a whole lot stronger than me. And it disturbed him. Because when we're faced with the reality that what we thought was the biggest and the strongest might not actually be the biggest and the strongest, it's unsettling. It's unsettling. And I think the author here, the preacher, might be bringing us to this type of point. He's brought us to the second row of this game called time. And the players, death and birth and reaping and sowing, and gaining, and losing, they're bigger, and they're stronger than you, and than I. And he's brought us to this point for us to go, wait, wait, wait. This is bigger than me? I can't control this? I'm not that strong? To which he would respond, no, you're not. 
No, you're not. But what you and I want to do is we want to hold on tight. When life seems bigger and stronger than us, we feel the need to become bigger and stronger than it. I have to learn more, experience more, accomplish more, live more, and gather more, and control more so that life can't beat me down. I have to get bigger. I have to get stronger so that I don't get run over by this thing called time. You and I try to be God over our time and our lives. M. Scott Peck wrote in The Road Less Traveled, as soon as we believe that it is possible for a man to become God, we can really never rest for long. We can never say, okay, my job is done. We must constantly push ourselves to greater and greater wisdom, greater and greater effectiveness. By this belief, we will have trapped ourselves at least until death on an effortful treadmill of self-improvement and spiritual growth. God's responsibility must be our own. Perhaps this is the treadmill you've been on. You feel like you have to get better and do more and gain more control and be stronger and be bigger and be more knowledgeable and have more wisdom so that you can control the game of time that you've been dealt. So you can hold on to the disquiets and the delights in the way that you want to. And Peck says, it's going to wear you out. Once you play that game, you'll never be able to rest. You can't just sit back if you are God over all this and take a moment off. The author of Ecclesiastes has brought us here to see this game of time and to face that we're not the biggest and the strongest, that time is out of our control. But he doesn't stop there. He hasn't just brought us to this point to to bring us to some goal to shock us into the reality that we can't control time and then leave us there in fear and anxiety of a world that's bigger and out of control from us. He doesn't just bring us to this place of fear to leave us there. This place of panic and leave us there. Rather, the preacher takes us beyond the realization that time is bigger and stronger than we are, and he presents us with one who is bigger and stronger than time. He presents us with a God who is actually above the sun and who holds time in his very hand, who knows the beginnings and the ends, who has dealt and worked and moved everything for his plans from beginning to end. The God who is above the sun brings life and he grants death. The God who is above the sun gives seasons of gathering and he gives seasons of loss. The God who is above the sun has control over seasons of mourning and seasons of laughing. He was not surprised, church, when your season of mourning began. He knew the day and the hour it would come. And he's not sitting back with his fingers crossed hoping for a season of dancing. He knows the day 
and the hour, it will come. Friends, he is not absent in your deep, painful, almost hopeless seasons of weeping. And he just happens to be the one who strikes up the band and plays the music for your seasons of dancing. Time is bigger than you, stronger than you. You can't control it. It is fleeting with everything that it brings. But our God who is above the sun is bigger than time and he holds it all in his hands. And here under the sun, uh, underneath the sun, when all we see is the time that's right in front of us and maybe a few years before and, a, and, and our hopes of a few years after, it's really, really hard to grasp the disquiets and the delights and how they come and go today. We want to understand and know all of his workings. Why did this happen? How long is it going to last? When is it going to be over? What's going to bring an end to it? What is next? And how do all these places, how, how do all these pieces work together? What am I supposed to be learning? What am I supposed to be doing? What good could possibly come from this? And our text tells us there is eternity that's been placed in your heart that longs to know these things that longs to grasp these things, but you can't understand the beginnings and the ends of God. Look with me. Verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. You have no control over your delights and your disquiets. But God does. He holds them in his hands. And he hands them to you to play in this season of time called life. Sometimes you get a piece and it makes no sense. What the heck is this? Sometimes you get a piece and you're like, oh, I can make sense of this. This is a corner piece. I don't know where this goes. And it gives some framework to life. And then you get another piece that you're just like, I don't know where to put this. And under the sun, we just see piece by piece. The God who is above the sun sees the entire scope of the picture from beginning to end. And though we can't understand his dealings and his, what he's doing from beginning to end, he's doing it all and he will make all things beautiful in their time. The word could be fitting in their time. In their time, all the pieces will fit together. But the problem is a lot of times we don't ever get to see that time. Maybe we get to see it over here. Maybe we get to see this part become beautiful. Maybe this part. But there's a lot of pieces in our life that we don't ever get to see them become beautiful. But look how he ends this passage. Verse 15. The end of it. And God seeks what has been driven away. All of the disquiets, all the losses, he seeks out and he will restore. 
He will restore them. Now, what the author brings us to is a response in chapter, in verse 12. His response has emotion. His response has action. Look at it. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. So here's his conclusion. Life is out of control to us. Time is out of control to us. We can't bring the seasons of delight or disquiet. We can't hold on to them. But there is one who can and does. And he has promised that he will make every season that we face be beautiful, fitting in its time, and he will restore what has been lost. And so the author goes, so here's what I've determined. We should be joyful. We should keep doing what's good in the midst of it. And we should learn to have pleasure in food and drink and work because they're all gifts. Again, if what we come to as ultimate is the God who is above the sun, then all that we have under the sun becomes gift. And this idea that he's bringing us to church is an idea that requires us to trust him. Last week, Sam ended his sermon by saying, we have to trust that God is sovereign, that he's in control. And we have to trust that he is for us, that he is good. Can we just be honest for a moment and say that's a lot easier said than felt or believed. For some of us, the idea that God is sovereign even over the disquiets greatly troubles our soul this morning. For some of us, the idea that God is for us when we've gone through what we've gone through is hard to imagine. How could he be? At the very best, he's just not noticed me. how do we get to joyfulness and delight and pleasure and good when the season that we're in happens to be one of disquiet? And perhaps the season you're in is one of delight, and today you're hearing this and you're like, I, yeah, I get it. I'm celebrating. I'm enjoying the pleasures. But guys, this afternoon, your whole delightful season could be flipped upside down, and it could be a lot harder to grasp tomorrow. Let me give you two encouragements about Jesus. Jesus, number one, experienced the disquiets and the delights of life. And he sympathizes with our struggle to trust God in the midst of them. See, Josh, that almost sounds heretical. Almost. He experienced our delights and our disquiets, and he sympathizes with our struggle to trust God in the midst of them. Jesus stepped out of heaven above the sun and into the dust below the sun, and he placed himself in the middle of a life full of delights and disquiets. 
He heard the songs of his mother's voice as he slowly drifted off to sleep as a child. And he felt the pain of looking his mother in the eye and asking a friend to watch over her as she watched him slowly die on the tree. He had the joy of spending time with his father, sitting by him and watching him as he did woodworking, learning the trait of his dad. But it appears that he also, at some point, had to say goodbye to his father as he took his last breath. Jesus felt the warmth of the sun on his face on beautiful days. But he also knew the bitter cold of homeless nights. Jesus had the delight of teaching Peter to control his temper. Have you ever had that delight of walking with someone? You're watching them learn, you're watching them grow, you're like they're getting it. And then Peter goes and cuts a guy's ear off. So close. The setbacks, the disquiets. Jesus laughed as he drank good wine and ate good food with friends. And then Jesus knelt down and he washed the feet of a friend who would betray him and would leave him in the hands of people who would hurt him. Jesus held little children in his lap and he wept over the loss of a good friend. He held hands and he danced with friends at splendid weddings. And he reached out and he touched the decaying arm of the leper. He had friends so close to him that they rested on his chest. And he had enemies so cruel that they ripped off his clothes, tore out his beard, beat him with their fists and with whips, and hung him up for all to see his shame. He knows disquiets and delights. Hebrews 4.15 says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest, Christ, sympathizes with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect like we have. Which means that when Jesus faced the delights and the discomforts of life, he knows what it's like to be tempted to not trust. He understands, he can sympathize with our fear, with our grasp for control. He knows, he sees, he understands. Which leads us to our second encouragement. Jesus is bigger, and he's better, and he's gladder than the hevel of time. He's bigger, and he's better, and he's gladder than the hevel of time. Hebrews 1.3 tells us this, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
right? Time is even being held up by his words. Beginning to end, we have no control over it, and he simply whispers and it listens to him. And Hebrews 1.8 says this, but of the Son, being Jesus, of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness far beyond your companions. See, Joshua, what's the point? What do you mean by this? Jesus holds time and all the delights and disquiets that come in the palm of his hands. And he holds them forever. There is no fleeting to his hold. There is no fleeting to his control. His reign will not lose grasp over time. He holds them from beginning to end forever. All of your delights and all of your disquiets and time sits in his grasp. And Jesus hates wickedness, loves righteousness, and uprightness is his scepter. And Jesus has been anointed with gladness. Which means this, Christian. To those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, all that is Jesus's is ours. If you are found in Christ, what is his is yours. We can't control time, but the one we are found in does. We can't hold on to the disquiets and the delights of life, but the one that we are found in does. When we struggle to grasp joy, he is full of gladness. When we can't seem to do good, uprightness is his scepter. You can't find pleasure in the fleeting hevel of this life, but remember that he is everlasting, and if you cling to him as your ultimate, you are free then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of drink and food and work today. He doesn't take away all the disquiets, but he understands them. And he knows when they'll end, and he knows what he's doing with them. And he has promised to restore and to make beautiful. And so the author goes, have joy. Have joy. And keep doing good and delight in the toil and the food and the drink and the pleasures of this world. Christian, though time is bigger and stronger than you are, though the disquiets and delights come and go and you can't control them, though your answers about all of the details of the whys and the hows and the whens will not all be answered today, Though you may long to get out of the disquiet today and into another delight, and you may long to hold on to the delight and never step back into a disquiet, we can still learn to walk in the joy of our Lord who knows and sees and understands and who's patient with us when joy seems to be slipping through our fingers as well. Because of the person and the work of Jesus, we have this hope. We have the hope that we get to spend eternity with him 
in a world that is not full of heaven, where disquiets will be no more. What a glorious hope and promise we have. To the unbeliever in the room today, would you trust Jesus? He's not going to remove all your disquiets this afternoon, but he'll be with you in them. And he knows when they'll end, and he'll bring delights, and he'll bring joys. And when the disquiets come again, he'll still be there. And all along, you have the hope of a life not under the sun, a life that is removed of the hevel, the fleetingness. It's the greatest hope we could have. Would you come to Jesus today? Find that hope. Every week we take communion and we do so remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, which has purchased us that hope. Today we come and we partake in the gift of bread and juice. We take the gift of it and we remember the gift of eternity. As we take this today, we remember the broken body of our Christ who actually knows the disquiets and the delights of life, who sympathizes and who redeems and restores. We have a lot to celebrate when we come to this table. And perhaps for you, church, today the way that you celebrate is by grieving well. Maybe you come to the table today and you grieve. You grieve the disquiets. That too is worship. Grieving in hope is worship. And so come. However you are, from wherever you're from, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, come. Bring your heart and all of its rawness to his table and allow him to fill you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, our invitation to you is to stay in your seat today, not to come take. Bread and this juice means nothing if you have not placed your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you don't know what that means, what that looks like to trust Jesus, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll be standing right here. Come talk to me. Jesus, we thank you for your word and for your truth. Be with us as we toil over this text. Be with us as we struggle over these truths. Be with us as we weep through our disquiets and as we dance through our delights. Help us evermore from day to day to increasingly trust you, that you are sovereign and in control, and that you are good and for us. And from that, may we delight in the life that you have given. May we do good, and may we embrace joy. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, come and take. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.